Well, I know you all loved our detour last week. So this is nice and gentle and kind. But we are back in Jude. So please open to uh, Jude. We're going to be in verses 14 through 15. Uh, we're, we're going to be reading through 8 through uh, 16. So if you want to actually go back to 8, that might make more sense. We're back to fire and brimstone. Uh, don't blame me. I'm just the preacher. Blame the Holy Spirit, I guess, for inspiring the text. I actually wore my red tie this morning to uh, prepare for a fiery judgment sermon. <laughs> In all seriousness, uh, I felt like I had to get all of my uh, humor out now because the topic that we're going to be talking today, uh, about today is not humorous. It is a sobering topic. It is weighty and heavy, um, threatening all about judgment. That's what we're going to be talking about, about hell, the wrath of the Lord, and judgment. It's not really a laughing matter. It deserves to be um, dealt with properly. And so there, there's all the jokes you'll get this morning. You should enjoy, enjoy them while they last. You know? If you spend much time in the Old Testament prophets, you'll quickly become aware of one particular motif, which is quite frequent. That motif is uh, this warning about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's this day which the prophets point to in which every single deed will be brought to judgment, where every injustice will be set right. Uh, we're told by the prophets it's not a good day. They say it will be a time of doom for the nations, of gloom with no brightness in it. And even though the prophets were primarily uh, speaking to Israel as the covenant people of God, they don't just apply the day of the Lord to Israel. The day of the Lord is something that exists for every nation, and the prophets make reference to that. Uh, they talk about the judgment that's going to come on Israel, yes, but Egypt and on Moab and Babylon and Assyria. Their point is every single person who has worshipped false idols, and every single person who has violated God's holiness with evil deeds needs to be warned because the Lord's wrath was surely coming. It's quite a common motif. It's all over the place. Equally common is the response, which is not perhaps what you'd expect it to be. People did not heed the warning very regularly. They utterly ignored what the prophets had to say about this great and terrible day of the Lord. People, people balked at, at the prophets and their message. They, they really weren't concerned about it. It didn't bother them. They continued on as though all would be as it always had been. Most commonly, just indifferent about the dire warnings. They didn't care one way or the other. And I don't think much has changed in thousands of years. The day of the Lord still is coming. Still. It looms in the future, and it continues to be proclaimed by the prophets of old, by pastors and evangelists today on, uh, in pulpits and on street corners. And the warning continues to be ignored by a world that loves its idols and loves its evil deeds. Jude, in our text this morning, hones in on this promise of judgment. He says, it's coming. It's coming. It's frightful and it's fearsome. And it marches towards these false teachers that Jude's been dealing with, with a fury and an unwavering resolve that ought to terrify those men who have snuck into the churches 
We've been using this example of uh, false teachers being like spiritual terrorists sneaking into churches to detonate bombs of heresy and immorality. Well, that's the case. Sticking with that illustration, the day of the Lord is like the SWAT team that knows where they are and is surrounding the, bu- the building and is closing in, and there's no escape for those men. Their works have given them away. Their fingerprints have been run through the system. They're going to be brought down. But not only they, also many, many others. Our text this morning says all the ungodly. And that's a fearsome, weighty thing. And that's our topic this morning. It's judgment. It's wrath. It's the coming of the Lord. And so I encourage you, prepare your hearts It's a weighty thing. It's a difficult topic, but the Bible speaks frequently about judgment, and thus it's worth us also speaking about. So let's read Jude verses 8 through 16. We'll pray, and then we'll take a closer look at verses 14 and 15. Nope, that's Revelation. Hold on. Okay. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this very sober text, Please help us to see clearly the danger of coming judgment for the whole world, Lord. Help us to feel the weight of our sin. Help us to see your infinite holiness, Lord. Please save us from the wrath to come through the Lord Jesus. And Father, help us to see that the salvation that we have is all the more beautiful because of the intensity and the fury of your coming wrath. Grant us an understanding of Jude, we pray this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So a quick review up to this point of the book of Jude that we've been going through. There have been certain men who have crept into the church unnoticed. They're deceiving others by their denial of the lordship of Christ. They didn't accept Jesus as their Lord and their master, and they totally rejected that he ruled over them. They totally rejected his law, and they taught that Christians can do whatever they want because they're under the grace of God. Jude responds by showing that these men are doing the same kinds of things that evil men did in the Old Testament. 
People like Sodom and Gomorrah, people like Cain or Korah. These men defile themselves sexually. They're arrogant. They offer worship to God, but it's, it's not genuine. It's not sincere. It's just formalized with nothing of their heart given. They're worse than useless. They are, in fact, a danger to the churches. And just like men and angels of old were, were judged harshly for such evil, so too will these men experience that kind of judgment. Now, we ended a couple of weeks ago at the end of verse 13 with the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. And I said we'd talk about it this week because it kind of is an intro into the section on judgment. So we're going to start there at the end of verse 13. Let's talk a little bit about uh, judgment. When unbelievers die, they are sent to a temporary hellish state, a prison. Luke 16 calls it a place of torment. In a parable that Jesus gives about the rich man and Lazarus, you may be familiar with that parable, we're told that the rich man is put into this place of torment, and he asked Abraham to touch the tip of his tongue with a bit of water to relieve the anguish for, for a moment, because it was so terrible, so intense. Just that little bit of water would be a huge relief, but there was no relief offered to him, only ongoing punishment. That is the state unbelievers enter into the moment they die, this spiritual realm of punishment. Jesus refers to this as a place of fire, of burning, broiling judgment. Now, on the day of the Lord, the, at the coming of Christ, all will be resurrected, both the just and the unjust, believers and unbelievers, and we will all stand before the great white throne of God. Those whose names are not listed in the Lamb's book of life, we're told in Revelation, it's that same group of unbelievers, they will then be cast into the lake of fire, the lake of fire, a place where sulfur feeds an ongoing, perpetual, eternal blaze of torment. It's literally a, a burning lake where people drown under the surface of fire and experience that level of torment for all eternity. When we think about this, I think we're un, we, we can't even conceptualize that kind of torment. We, we, we think about it and we quickly divert our minds because it's so, so penetratingly terrible. It's so awful. It's so intense. It's hard for us to grasp that level of suffering. But scripture talks about it time and time again. Scripture tells us it's a place where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. It tells us it's a place where men are punished with eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Isaiah uses the language of a worm not dying and fire not being quenched. And it's really hard to think about, to dwell on. It's, it's painful the images are, the feelings that they elicit are astonishing and they're horrific. We've never been to this lake of fire. We can't describe it. God alone right now knows the kind of suffering and torment that will be inflicted in eternity. And so God alone is the only one fit to describe what that will be like. And he uses this image of fire to mark and describe what that experience will be like. Now, I don't know if that fire is actually literal or non-literal. 
What I do know is that a place of unending conscious torment is certainly literal. I tend to think it's literal. It's used so frequently. But even if it's not, the point is there's a place where the anguish is so severe, so intense, it's like unending burning in fire. Jude makes reference to this. He says, gloom of utter darkness. That's what's reserved for these men. Utter darkness. It's it's a place with no light. There's no stray ray of hope. There's nothing bright. There's nothing good. Reserved for the gloom of utter darkness really indicates that there will be a particularly intense judgment reserved for those who lead Christians astray. These false teachers will have an incredibly intense, weighty judgment coming from them. Consider our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 18. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We don't believe in formalized levels of hell. You you earned level two of hell. We We don't believe in that. But we do acknowledge that there are differing degrees of judgment. Differing degrees in judgment. That means not everyone who is cast into that lake of fire will experience the same level of agony for eternity. Consider Jesus' words on this in Matthew chapter 11. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it will be more bearable, more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you more bearable. Well, that tells us on the day of judgment, there is a distinction in the intensity of judgment offered to two of those cities and two of the other cities. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to avoid judgment, but rather judgment will be more terrible for some than others. If you remember back in Jude verse 6, earlier in this book, Jude had talked about gloomy darkness before. This is what he said in verse 6. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You've got to notice the similarity in language there between verse 6 and verse 13. Fallen, rebellious, immoral angels who in part incited the great flood experience a similar kind of judgment of gloomy darkness to these false teachers. That's the level, the intensity of the judgment they're going to receive. Jude wants to make this perfectly clear. False teachers will be particularly and uniquely judged for what they've done. That leads him into his final word on judgment to these men. After this, Jude kind of turns, turns a corner a little bit. But now at verse 14, here's what he says. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. (sighs) This is a difficult verse. (laughs) This is a hard verse. Of all the prophets and all the writings that we have in the Old Testament, we've got to admit it is a little bit weird that Jude quotes Enoch. It's not a part of the Bible. Now, Enoch is... Certainly in the Bible, we see him referenced in Genesis chapter 5. He was indeed, if you count inclusively, the seventh from Adam. Genesis 5 says this about him. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What does it mean when Genesis says he was not? Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death 
And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. On account of his faith, Enoch was taken up into heaven, kind of like Elijah, uh, without having died. He, he was a faithful saint, one who, according to Jude, prophesied about the coming of Christ with myriads of his angels to judge ungodliness. Now, when we look at this prophecy, the problem with it is not the content. What he says is true. We can find that all, all over the Bible. The difficulty is really with its source, with its origin. It comes from uh, Enoch. And specifically, this prophecy seems to be a quote from a book called First Enoch, or sometimes the book of Enoch, in chapter 1 of that work, verse 9. First uh, Enoch is not a part of the Bible. It's never been a part of the Bible. It was likely compiled progressively between 300 B.C. and 100 A.D., and we really have no reason to think that the book of Enoch was actually written by Enoch. Uh, it would have had to survive the great flood. Uh, there are tons of indicators grammatically that it is uh, a work in that 300 to 180 period. When you look at the grammar and the syntax and the, and the vocab used, it just doesn't seem like it's his, uh, historic ancient. And it's well regarded to be written not by Enoch. So, does that pose a bit of a problem for us? Does it pose a problem for us that Jude claims that this was a real prophecy by Enoch by quoting from a book that wasn't written by Enoch? Is that a problem? I don't think so. Even though it's difficult, I admit there's difficulties here. I don't think it's a problem. And here are a few reasons why as I've thought about this uh, this last week. First, just because this one quote from 1st Enoch is a real prophecy, that doesn't necessitate that the entire rest of the book is prophetic or inspired. There are uh, almost a laughable number of theories about the relationship between this quote and the book of Enoch and Enoch himself and Jude. Um, after sorting through them, I think what has happened here, this is the best, my, my best theory, I think is uh, first Enoch actually incorporated elements of oral tradition into the book, a tradition that had been passed down from Enoch through the ages that someone wrote down, and then they added a whole bunch of stuff to it that wasn't historic, wasn't ancient, but there were things in First Enoch that were true and had been passed down. Now, it seems to me Jude likely knew that. He knew which parts were relevant, and so he quoted that knowing that that part of First Enoch was true, but without meaning to say that the rest of it was true. Now, I could be wrong about that. I, I could be. Uh, but even if I am, I don't think that Jude's quote requires us to see the entirety of the book of Enoch as inspired. It only tells us that this statement was legitimately prophesied by Enoch. Second point in all this I think it's notable that Jude doesn't use the particular phrase as it is written, which is the most frequent way the New Testament cites Scripture. Instead, he says, Enoch prophesied. Now, this word prophesied is kind of broad. It can be used to talk about what the Old Testament prophets said and referencing something in the New Testament, but it's also used in a broader sense even beyond that. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas, the high priest, is said to have unknowingly prophesied about Jesus dying for the whole nation. That's the same word Jude uses. And yet we don't understand that to mean that all the rest of Caiaphas's words were inspired or that everything he said ought to be in Scripture, just that the Holy Spirit used that one particular phrase. And I think a similar case could be made that that's what's going on right here as well. 
Now, some people use this verse in Jude to argue that we're missing books of the Bible. They're really concerned. This proves we should have First Enoch in the Bible. I totally disagree with that, and here's why. There are no major branches of Christianity that have ever thought First Enoch should be a part of the Bible. There are super minor splinter uh, groups, but no major branches ever recognize this. The Spirit of God leads His church. And we would not be missing a book from our Bibles that God intended for us to have. God is able to preserve His Word. He has given us His Word as he wants us to have it. So the fact that it's not in here, and it's not ever been in here through church history, should be very confirming for us that we don't need the book of 1 Enoch in, as, as a part of the canon. It was never intended to be a part of the canon. So it's a difficult text, admittedly. There's lots of questions. Uh, but I think we can say it's a legitimate prophecy without saying we need to accept the entire book of 1 Enoch. That's only one half of the difficulty. The second half of the difficulty is, why would Jude quote Enoch instead of other, uh, other verses that say very similar things in the Old Testament? Well, we don't know for sure, honestly. But there are a couple theories that I thought were pretty compelling as I was going through this. It's possible Jude really wanted to draw attention to the antiquity of this particular prophecy to show how ancient this promise of judgment really was. Uh, I mean, Enoch's mere generations after Adam and he gives this promise of judgment. Uh, perhaps Jude is wanting to show this is not a new or fresh idea. These teachers have been warned for generations, for, for eons about this coming judgment. Also, some scholars have suggested that these kinds of false teachers in this day were really obsessed with weird books like First Enoch or like the Assumption of Moses, which we talked about a few weeks ago in verse 9. And that Jude, by citing these kinds of odd works, which the false teachers loved, was trying to demonstrate the inconsistency of these false teachers. Basically, he was saying, even by the standards of the writings you most love, you're still condemned and you're still judged. Um, that's possible as well. It's tricky stuff, admittedly. Uh, if you have more questions about all of this, please ask me after the service. A lot of the things weren't really relevant to, to talk about in the format of a sermon, but I'd be happy to answer more questions if I can, um, if you want to chat about it more after service. But the point that Jude is making is not the Enoch part, but the content of Enoch's prophecy. So let's take a look at that, verses 14 through 15. Here's what Enoch prophesied. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, there's quite a repeated theme in this text, don't you think? This theme of ungodliness pops up four times in uh, those couple of verses. Ungodliness brings about judgment. That's his point. He says it multiple different ways. And Enoch's prophecy, while Jude aims it at the false teachers, is much broader than that. It warns all of the ungodly. It warns them that when the Lord Jesus comes with thousands upon thousands of his angels, he will execute judgment on every ungodly deed committed, on every ungodly word spoken. That is intense. All of the hellish descriptors of Scripture that we just talked about a few minutes ago, this unending torment in the lake of fire. Jude says by citing this prophecy, it's coming for 
everyone who's ungodly to execute judgment on all, he says. Lord, have mercy. I remember last year in uh, Provo on a Thursday night, I was talking with a gentleman who had recently left the Mormon church, and uh, he was a good guy to talk with. Uh, he expressed that his biggest concern with Christianity was our idea of judgment, eternal judgment, hell specifically. That was his biggest hang-up. He wondered, how could God be genuinely good if hell really exists? So I asked him, do you think it would be wrong, ethically wrong, to throw a man in prison for murdering someone? He agreed with me, no, that would, that would be appropriate. I said, all right. So we don't disagree then about the category of justice. You think there needs to be justice. I think there needs to be justice. The Bible says there needs to be justice. That's not what we disagree on. Rather, we disagree about the offensiveness of sin and the holiness of God. That's really where our disagreement lies. I think that he is representative of many people who reject a literal hell. Should such small, minor sins really deserve such incredible torment? I mean, does not such severity seem unjust for minor infractions? Well, no, those are questions I think worthy of consideration and response. Those are, on the surface, good questions, ones worth answering. So, there are two things that we must understand with respect to the justice of God in punishing that harshly sins that we commit. Two things we have to understand. First, we must grasp the infinite holiness of God. Don't mishear me. Not that God is holy, but that God is infinitely holy. Second, we must understand that there is no such thing as a minor sin in the way that most people speak about it. There is no such thing as a minor sin. I'm really indebted to the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs' work on this topic. Uh, much of his work, The Evil of Evils, informed uh, my thinking about a lot of this. So if you're curious to study more, I'd, I'd commend uh, his, his book to you, The Evil of Evils. Let's talk about God's infinite holiness. Sin is opposite to God, opposite to his nature. It's the opposite of what he is. It's like black to white, hot to cold, light to darkness. First John says, in him there's no darkness at all, no, no smudge upon his holiness. So listen, it's not just that God doesn't sin. It's that God is not sin. That's actually a really significant distinction. God's very nature, his essence, his being is not sin. It's the opposite of sin. If God ever sinned, that would be a contradiction of his nature. It would be against who he is and what he is. He'd not be God anymore if he sinned. He's unchangeably, infinitely holy. Okay, so what, you say? Well, because of this nature, his, his holy nature, if God tolerated sin, he would be eternally accepting something contrary to his nature. He would have to withhold and restrain his infinite holiness for all of eternity to withstand sin that was not judged. 
It's not possible. It's not possible. If sin is opposite God, God can't sin, nor can he eternally abide with sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be infinitely holy. His holiness would have a cap, a limit, a threshold. God has no threshold of his holiness, and thus there's no threshold on the degree to which God hates that which is contrary to him. Because the Lord is infinitely holy, his hatred for unholiness is also infinite. If God hated sin any less than he does, he would not be God. So what does that mean? That means that there's no such thing as a minor sin. There's no such thing as a minor violation of God's very nature. All sin contradicts his very nature, regardless of the severity of the transgression. Now, I think we have biblical examples of this principle. Uh, Consider Uzzah, a seemingly faithful Israelite with good intentions. If you remember the story, David was trying to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Uzzah reached out and tried to stabilize the ark because the oxen had stumbled. And what happened? He was immediately struck dead at the spot, that moment. He had good intentions. He just wanted to help. I mean, I imagine myself doing the same thing. Ark of God might fall in the dirt. Make sure it doesn't fall in the dirt. But that single act, that, that moment of an unintentional lapse in judgment stirred the Lord's wrath against him to strike him down immediately. Now, it's such a well-intentioned act warranted such immediate and severe wrath. Does that not tell us something about God's holiness? And does it not tell us something about the power of sin and and how significant a thing it is in God's eyes. Consider also the example of the angels, which Jude spoke about earlier in his book. God has sentenced millions upon millions of beings far greater than us to condemnation, eternal condemnation, without hope of pardon, with no mercy offered to them seemingly. Angels don't have a mediator. We have a mediator. We have the Lord Jesus mediating on our behalf. The angels don't have the Lord Jesus mediating on their behalf. They are condemned and damned without mercy, without hope for pardon. And it was a single sin, a single act of rebellion that compelled God to cast them out. Imagine if you knew a friend who was just a really, really loving friend. He was very kind and gentle and gracious, and that's all you've ever known of him, and then One day, he's interacting with some guy. You don't know what's going on. All you know is he's freaking out. He's anger. He's filled with wrath. Would you not assume that, well, whatever that other guy did must be very severe. It must be very significant a thing to rile up my friend who is so kind and gracious and loving. Who is more loving? Who is more merciful? Who is more gentle than the Lord? None of us. He's the very definition of love and mercy. If love himself acts so harshly towards sin, then instead of us thinking he's unjust, perhaps, perhaps it's that sin was far more revolting to him, far more abhorrent to him than we've realized. Hebrews tells us it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for our God is a consuming fire. Jesus warns the false teachers. He says, Jesus is coming to judge all the ungodly. And Jude is warning you as well this very morning that Jesus is coming to judge all the ungodly. He also warns 
the entirety of the world. Jesus is coming to judge all the ungodly. Not a man, woman, or child can escape it. Yet how few are there in our so-called enlightened society who actually regard and fear this warning, who actually take it seriously? God's warnings are gracious. They're merciful. God always warns. He's always warned. Time and time again, he warns. He's he's long-suffering. He's patient. But his wrath will come. And he has warned our culture, our society for generations. And still, wickedness continues on. And judgment continues to grow looming in the future. Men ignored the warning back then. Men ignore the warning still today. It's a pattern, you see. It's a pattern, a pattern regarding the judgments of God. It's seen all over the scripture. Consider the days of Noah. I want to remind you about the language Genesis 6 uses to tell us about those days before the flood. Here's what Genesis says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry that I have made them. What an age of wickedness that must have been. The wickedness of man was great, on the earth. His heart was only evil continually, he said, continually. Well, now what does that mean, continually? Continually, it's constantly pouring out of men. Evil exudes from them. It oozes from their their very essence, their soul. It's like a sponge soaked in water. It's just so saturated, it just drips whatever it's soaked up. But they had soaked up evil, and so the only thing that they were outputting was evil, evil continually. Their hearts, their imaginations, their minds, their deeds, they're all evil, they're all corrupted. And when that evil had reached its threshold, the Lord spoke and he said, Noah, build an ark. I am wiping out everything on the surface of the planet because its evil is so abhorrent to me. It's so offensive to me. I cannot bear with it any longer. 120 years more, said God, and my wrath will no longer be restrained. Scripture tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. Now, I imagine that means he must have told people about the coming flood. He must have warned them, must have warned them that God was displeased with them, must have warned them that their only hope was this ark he was commanded to build. Yet consider that not a single man on the face of the planet got on that boat. Not one. Imagine the thinking of these men. Noah says, the world will be destroyed by a great flood. You must get on this boat. Ten years go by. A decade. These men come to Noah. (laughs) Noah, where's this flood you're talking about? What a fool they must have thought him to be. Years, years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. What's up with your prophecy, Noah? How's that boat going? Looks pretty dry to me. A hundred years, a hundred and nineteen years. They're saying the same thing until the flood came. Jesus told us they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware 
until the flood came and swept them all away. They were unaware that until the destruction arrived, they hadn't believed it. Noah told them they hadn't believed him. Noah was crazy. He was a fool. He's wasting his life. And I wonder what they were thinking as the torrents rushed towards them and as they knew they were going to drown, what they thought, those who knew Noah, what they just for a moment considered. If only I had gotten on that boat. If only I had gotten on that boat perhaps I would have survived. Consider the example of Jerusalem in the days prior to the Babylonian captivity. Prophet after prophet after prophet, they're all saying the same thing. Destruction is coming. Judgment is coming. You're the target, Jerusalem. Your deeds are crying out against God. You better beware. You better repent. And yet, years and years, decades and decades go by of warning, and the people said, no harm will come. They found false prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. Jerusalem will be restored. It'll have peace. They say, Isaiah, you're a fool. Throw Jeremiah in prison. What's he talking about? Ezekiel's a madman. God warned them. He always warns. He warned them. And they didn't believe him. Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's sons-in-law, they didn't believe Sodom would be overthrown, and they perished in the city. Nebuchadnezzar was warned that his pride would cause him to be like an animal for years. Yet did anything change? No, until the day when he ate grass because of his pride. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern here? Time and time again, across cultures, across years, different prophets, different ages, all the same pattern. Wickedness comes up. Evil surges in the heart of men. God warns judgment judgment, and the people laugh it off. They're not concerned. They eat, they drink, they marry. They scoff. Brothers and sisters, is this not our culture this very day? Is this not our world and our society doing the same thing? It's exactly what the apostle Peter tells us will happen. Scoffers will come, Peter says. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact. The world that then exist was deluged with water and perished. But the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Brothers and sisters, it's hard for me this morning to not strike a comparison between our society, our civilization, and the days of Noah. It's hard for me to not strike a, a comparison between our world. It's it's Pride Month, it's June, and the and the the world of Sodom. And Gomorrah. It's hard to not draw a parallel between the idolatry of our age and the idolatry in Jerusalem. People worship what they want. They they sacrifice to whom they want. They don't care about God. Do not those parallels frighten you just a bit? Where are we headed? Where are we going? Where does this end? Look at what God did to Noah's world. What will he do to ours? He's promised not to destroy it with water. And I don't know if the Lord will particularly judge us before the day of the Lord. I don't know. But I do know judgment's coming. I do know that it's coming one way or another. When I look at the world, it seems like every corner of our culture is just plain evil. Just like Noah's day. 
It's the imagination and the minds and the deeds. It's just, it's just evil. It's just evil. It's continually evil. Have you looked at what our world has put out lately? Have you, have you watched a movie lately? Have you heard secular music? It's, it's debased. It's all debased. It's grotesque. It's evil. It glorifies anything that God hates. The world can't help it because evil's in their heart. It oozes out of them. It's like the sponge. They're consumed with it. They're saturated with it. Evil, evil continually. Our culture, it's, it's, it's just flying apart. Clothes and books and politics and TV, it's all evil. It smells of evil. It reeks of evil. There's a rainbow flag on every website, on every store, on every corner. It's evil continually. And should that not give our world pause? No one in our world looks at society and says, things are going well. Not even unbelievers. Should not the evils cause people to pause and say, what's wrong? Something. I was listening to a sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones the other day. He was speaking about this exact topic, and he was specifically comparing some uh, things between the 1850s and the 1950s. Uh, and how degraded their society was, and how hardened people's hearts were. And and here's what he said. Just consider his words here. Wouldn't you have thought on general principles that two world wars would have sobered mankind? That they would have forced men to stop and say, well, no, we can't go on like this. There must be something wrong somewhere. Where is it? But are they doing that? Do the wireless and the television programs suggest they're doing it? It's only just over 10 years since the last world war ended with a terrible and horrifying atomic bomb, and yet men and women tonight are thinking about everything else, about eating and drinking and having their supposed good times and laughing at the jokes of the comedians. How funny it all is. Things are going well. Let's enjoy ourselves. The money's coming in. People are warning us. What's a warning? Why listen to that? Why be a spoil sport? Let's carry on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, planting and sowing. It's the same mentality, precisely the same, that led God to action in Noah's day. I heard this and I just shuddered because are we not worse than 1950s? Is our society not far worse? I don't claim to know what God will do with our culture. I don't know, but this I do know. The day of the Lord is coming, and the the Lord will arrive with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all the ungodly. So let your hearts be sobered at this reality this morning. Our culture lies in shambles, and it's getting worse. It's not turning around. Worse and worse, continually degrading, like the days of the judges. People say, who cares? We'll go watch our movies. We want our entertainment. We want our sex. Seems like the only thing that shakes people is a mass shooting. A mass shooting happens, everyone freaks out, and they say, guns, yes, that's the biggest problem. But they stop short of realizing there's something wrong in the souls of people. There's something broken. There's something not right. This shouldn't be happening. We're a violent people. We're a debased people. What's wrong with us? We never pause. We never stop to think, why can't we get it right? Why do things inevitably go wrong? Why are there wars? Why can't we fix things? There's got to be a problem somewhere. And we're so distracted. Our world is so so distracted and entertained. We're full. We're plump. 
I mean, really, how can you be confronted with the evil in your soul if you always have earbuds in your ears and are constantly distracting yourself with music? How could you be confronted with what's in your soul? Distraction, distraction. The devil pulls our attention away from the issue. We all know there's a problem. Every man knows there's a problem. But so many stop short of thinking that it might just have something to do with my heart and my soul. And so, when we Christians, we stand out there and we say, judgment, the day of the Lord comes. People, they look at their phones, they look, it up, look up at us for a moment, they scoff, they laugh, and they go back to their TikTok feeds without a second thought. They say, where is this coming? It's been 2,000 years, you backwards fools. And then they go back to their late night shows and their Marvel movies and their Instagram feeds, to their eating and their drinking and their marrying and their laughing the same way it was before the flood. I don't know where your heart is this morning. Maybe you're caught in that same current. You're distracted. You're uninterested. Maybe Christianity means nothing to you because you're not convinced of it. You don't believe it. Well, then may the Spirit of God convince you of this. There is a problem. No one can account for it. No one in the world knows what's wrong, but they know there's a problem. But we know it's the problem of sin. It's the problem of the heart. It's what the Bible says. It's what our eyes see also when we look at the world. Sure, you can mask the problems with your entertainment and alcohol, jobs, whatever, but you know it's there. In your soul, in your heart, there's evil. God is speaking through Jude this very morning to warn you. He always warns. He's merciful in warning to warn you that a day is coming. It's coming. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus ought prove to us judgment's coming. I don't know when it will come, but I do know that it will come. There's one more story in the Old Testament, one more judgment warning I want to draw your attention to, and that is the story of Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He walks through the city and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But the people believed him. They stopped and they believed him. They tore their clothes. They put on sackcloth. They repented. The text says from the greatest of them to the least of them. And God relented and he showed them mercy. Had men of Noah's day only gotten on the boat. They had just gotten on the boat. They believed Noah. But no one believed. They mocked and they perished. There is a greater flood coming. It's not of water. It's of fire. And there's a better ark. Not one made with human hands of wood. It's a, a better ark. It's a refuge and a fortress that will withstand the strongest fire. The Lord Jesus Christ is the better ark of God, which can save you from this terrible wrath. And all you have to do is get on the boat. Don't be like the men of Noah's day. Just get on the boat. Pause for a moment and see the evil that's there and know God will judge ungodliness. If you see this morning your own heart, if you recognize 
evil continually. Then I plead with you, get on the boat. Trust in the Lord Jesus. He is your only hope to avoid that lake of fire. You're not worthy. You're not a good enough swimmer to withstand the flood. You're not worthy. You're not good. You're not righteous. The only hope you have is that better ark. The only hope you have is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans tells us, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. God is warning you this morning, you. He always warns. He warned Noah, he warned Israel, he warned Nineveh, and he warns you. Who will you follow after, Noah's day or Nineveh, who repented? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you won't perish but you'll have everlasting life. Judgment is worthy of our attention. It's imminent. It's terrifying. And I think that as Christians, we so often shy away from talking about it because we have bought into this lie that, well, it'll push people away. It'll it'll make them not like Christianity or not like us. I think that's really silly because uh, once they come to a church, eventually they're going to find out about it. (laughs) Uh, The reality is God will judge people. They don't have to like it, but he will. It's part of our duty to recognize these things and talk about them and listen. It's so important to recognize judgment is not the end of the gospel. It's the beginning. It's where we start. How can you have salvation if you don't know what you're saved from? You must know the danger to know what it is to be saved from it. So brothers and sisters, know about the coming wrath and then delight in the salvation that you have in the Lord Jesus. He has rescued you. He has saved you. He has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. You haven't deserved it. All you did was get on the ark. Your heart was just as evil as everyone else, but you got on the ark. And that is what Christianity is. It's a group of people who are, who are torn and broken, ruined by the fall. And we don't come to the Lord saying, I'm a really good swimmer, God. You can send that flood. I will survive. No, we say, Lord, have mercy. Please allow me onto your ark. And we get on board and we're saved. Jesus' death on the cross is how we escape this judgment. It is precious. It's valuable. But you must know the judgment to know its value. Christians, Be reminded of what you're saved from. Daily delight in our salvation, secured through the mighty blood of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, infinitely so, and we are so not holy. We are so broken and ruined and corrupted. Lord, we have nothing to offer you in our hands. We have no reason that you should save us. Uh, Lord, and so we just cry out, have mercy, Lord. Have mercy on us. Have mercy. Do not judge us as we deserve to be judged. We, We don't have another course of action. We don't have another plea, Lord. Just please have mercy. And have mercy not because of us, but because of Jesus because of his work, because he bore our sins and and took that wrath that we deserved, because he gives us a righteousness, not our own. Lord, we just plead Jesus. We just trust in him. We, we, We cry for mercy on the basis of his works, Lord, and we thank you that you've promised to save us, 
to seal us with your Holy Spirit, to rescue us from the wrath to come. Lord, be pleased and honored in the work of saving us. Lord, may, may our salvation be a trophy of your graces and of your justice. Lord, help us to recognize that sin is so vile, a thing before you that we ought to live righteous lives, not, not so that we can be saved, but because it's what you desire, it's what honors you and pleases you, and you've been so kind, and you've been so gracious through Christ. Father, strengthen your people gathered here this morning. Encourage them with the gospel, and remind us that judgment is not the end of the gospel, but the beginning. Lord, remind us of that, please, we ask this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.